Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. is airing on Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. Hello everyone, it's Shannon back with you for another Tuesday morning episode. This week I'm taking us back to an interview that Stacy and I were lucky enough to do um, in the early spring. This is with historical romance author Harper St. George and we are discussing the third book in her Gilded Age Heiress series. So if you're a fan of historical romance, definitely give this interview a listen. And once that's done, I'll be back with you to chat about the week's new releases. So let's get started with the housekeeping information, followed by the interview, and then we'll talk about new books. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the book bistro podcast at gmail.com. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the book bistro podcast. This is Shannon and I have Stacy here with me this morning. And we are delighted to be chatting with author Harper St. George about her latest novel, The Lady Tempts an Heir. This was released in the U.S. on February 22nd. Harper, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Shannon and Stacy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. We are excited to have you. Can we start with a brief introduction to The Lady Tempton Air and kind of how it fits into your series so that listeners have an idea what to expect? Sure. Uh, so my series is The Gilded Age Heiresses, and this is book three in the series. Um, it follows the Crenshaw family who own Crenshaw Ironworks. Um, the first two books were about the sisters in the family, and this is their brother. Um, I don't know if you've been watching The Gilded Age on HBO or anything, but in that yes. time, <laughs> yeah, so in that time period, um, you had all these wealthy industrialists who really had more money than anyone had ever had in the history of the world before. You know, we were talking about the world's first billionaires. Um, so they had gotten their money through industrialization, so the middle part of the 1800s. And that unfortunately meant because they were new money, they were excluded from the old society in New York, which it's 
I don't know. If you think about it objectively, it's a little ridiculous because these people had only had money for a couple hundred years, you know, for <laughs> yes. trading and things like that. <laughs> so, you know, but it was a big deal. And so what a lot of these families did starting in the 1870s, especially in the 1880s and 1890s, would marry their daughters to um, European nobility. Um, at that time, especially in Great Britain, the agricultural society was sort of floundering as the cities grew and the middle class grew. So a lot of them were becoming impoverished. So they would marry these women, take their gigantic dowries for their estates, and these marriages were called cash for class. Um, so that's what this series is based around. The first, the, the Crenshaw family the parents take the daughters to London to find husbands for them. Um, so they'll finally be accepted in New York ballrooms, which is funny because they usually ended up staying in England or Europe. <laughs> they didn't really, the women anyway, didn't go back. The husbands would go back and work their jobs, but the women would sort of end up staying in Europe. Um, so that's what the first two books were. And the third book is about the, son who had tried to help his sister escape these marriages um so you know and the with equality he would have to you know be forced into his own marriage indeed <laughs> sure so um he decides to, his father gives him an ultimatum either marry someone whoever you want uh because his father has a health scare and he wants to secure the legacy of the company. He wants to see his grandchildren brought into the company because he's had this health scare and he could see, you know, the end could be closer than he thinks for him. Um, so he gives Max, the hero of The Lady Tips and Air, an ultimatum to marry someone um, or to be engaged by the end of the year. And of course, Maxwell bristles at this and decides he's going to fake an engagement and that'll be good enough. And so family friend is Lady Helena, who befriended his sisters and helped them in the first two books. And so book three is their fake engagement. I love, love fake dating stories, whether they're historical <laughs> or contemporary. There's so many great things that happen. I do, too. I like them, especially in historical, because then you have the, uh, you know, the social restraints, like they're not supposed to be alone together that much. And yeah, the hand touches and things like that. It's a little more of a slow burn. I love those. So can you tell us a little bit about what sort of inspired you to set this series in this particular time period? Was it kind of what you were talking about with the kind of new money versus old money? Or was there something else that kind of drew you in? Oh, there was something very specific. So I'd always loved the Victorian era just because you had the social changes, but still the same um, social constraints that you see sort of in the Regency era, which is, you know, most of historical mm -hmm. romance early in the 1800s. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I've always loved the time period. And then my friend told me about a tour she had taken um, in Newport, Rhode Island. And this is where all of these families had their cottages, which were 
basically palaces, and you can still go there and tour them. They were their summer homes. Um, and she had toured a house, and it had belonged to Consuelo Vanderbilt's parents. Oh. And she is probably one of the most famous of these heiresses. Um, and her, she was married off to a duke in the 1890s. So these marriages had been going on for about 20 years by this time. So her parents, her mom especially, when she was born, her goal was to marry her to one of these noblemen. Um, so she was probably overly educated. She was sort of kept secluded from other children. She was not really allowed to, you know, make friends among her class in in New York and Rhode Island because her family, I guess, didn't want her to have attachments there because they knew she was going to England or somewhere over there. Um, and she was, she had tutors, everything. She had a strict schedule every day. But the one thing that really made me feel for her was they had this brace constructed for her that would fit around her waist with a metal rod up her spine. And then it would have an apparatus that would cup under her chin. And she would have to wear that for hours a day just to focus on posture. That's horrible. Yeah. And if you ever see photos or paintings of her, she has this really long, graceful neck. And everybody talked about how wonderful her posture was. And it was because of this. And she had been basically trained to marry someone. Well, of course, she does fall in love with someone who he comes from a family with money, but it's not an old money family. Um, And she wants to marry him. And her mother, um, I'm Southern, so we would say she pitched a fit. (laughs) (laughs) Not marrying him. She threatened to have him killed. She pretended her. She was on her deathbed because Consuelo was killing her by not doing what she wanted. So finally Consuelo consents to this marriage to a duke and they get married in New York. And even in the papers, after she told me this story, I kind of went and researched in the papers. There were cartoons of her crying as she walks down the aisle with um, a ball and chain on her foot. And then the duke is holding money bags But um, for his defense, he apparently also wanted to marry someone else, but he was sort of forced by his family into the marriage as well. And of course, it was a terrible marriage and they ended up getting divorced some years later. But that was that was what really drew me to the time period and all of the stories. In all, there were about 350 American women married. Um, into the European aristocracy, and I was just like, my gosh, there's just wow. so much there. That is, I've, I, I read a lot of historical romance, but I've never heard that story told in quite that way. And I just think, you know, I, I don't want to give away any spoilers for upcoming characters, but um, you've sort of painted a picture of something um, kind of like that. And I'm, what I'm hoping is going to be another character's book down the road of an American who has to go to England and has this sort of unfortunate marriage. But the Gilded Age is such an interesting time period, I feel like. Um, It's sort of on the cusp of the 20th century. And one of the aspects of your book that I really liked, and you kind of touched upon this, was the sort of swell of social change that was going on um, in London at the time. 
And so our heroine is working with some charity work that feels to her peers to be sort of risque. And I'm just sort of curious, what types of research did you have to do to accurately portray um, what the women that she was trying to support, like how they were actually treated during that time period? Um, Well, there were, um, it's sort of an amalgamation of a lot of different readings of the time period. There were some women who, not necessarily ladies from the aristocracy, but other Mm -hmm. sort of middle-class women who were doing these sorts of charities. And it comes down to, you know, the industrial era was, you know, there was no minimum wage at until, you know, 1870s, 80s, and 90s. There were no time constraints, really, on how long you could be forced to work and You could lose your job if you left your 12-hour shift early because your child was sick. So it sort of came up. There were just all of these issues with people not really even being able to raise a family, even married couples, Mm -hmm. uh, because you both had to work. There was no child care if you didn't have older parents or someone who could watch your children. So actually, a lot of the orphans at the time were not really orphans. Their parents just could not watch after them or they would be left wandering the streets all day and sort of be picked up. I mean, it was a little bit like a stray animals, you know, it was really terrible how these people were treated. So there were a lot of charities popping up at that time to sort of address the issue and very little being done at the top you know, the people who pulled the strings and could actually Mm -hmm. do anything to help these people. And, uh, you know, it was a long time. And even now we're still dealing with some of that with child care issues and things like that, not really being accessible for everyone. You know, and it's just, it's such, like I said, it's an interesting time period to write about because it does feel on the cusp of the 20th century, but there's still so Mm -hmm. many sort of antiquated beliefs like if you assist these women they're going to taint you or and I I found that aspect of the story to be quite fascinating I was texting Shannon about it and saying oh my god wow oh my god and um I just I appreciate how you wrote about that and even just like the reluctance to have any sort of association with with supporting our heroine in her endeavor to make the lives of these women and children better um, just because they didn't want to have that sort of stigma of helping. Um, it was just, to me, that was a very interesting aspect of the story. Um, yeah. Um, oh, sorry. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Um, I was going to say, yeah, it really, one thing as I was researching, um, if you were a single woman, you would really, it was like you were opening yourself up to being influenced by these people. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, it was crazy. And how just having a husband at your side or a husband who was saying, I'm OK with this, would help smooth things over. And she would suddenly be OK. Well, it's fine. He knows she's doing it. He's humoring her. She can help these people as long as she has him overseeing her. You know, that attitude is really hard to understand. <laughs> it, it really is. <laughs> And um, and I just wanted to say before I move on to my next question that I just want to thank you. I, my my very first um, romance that I read way back in the dark ages was um, a Jude Devereaux historical. So that's what I sort of oh, yeah. started on. And I read historicals for many, many years. And then 
all the ballrooms and potted palms started feeling a little bit too similar. So I stopped. And then last summer I read a synopsis of the devil and the heiress and I'm like, Oh, I need this. And I picked it up. And so I need to thank you for being the author that got me back into reading historical romance on a more regular basis. So thanks for that. Yeah. And I really loved that book too. And I just wanted to tell you that, but um, so just in general, speaking of historical romance um, more generally, um, what unique challenges do you think kind of exist for authors who choose to write historical romance? Um, <laughs> oh, gosh, there are that's a, a broad um, question. I know. <laughs> well, I think you kind of have to make a choice. Are you going sort of the romance fantasy historical, which is totally fine. I mean, I read romance for escape, so I'm not saying you have to you know, only read one or the other, but as you're writing, you need to figure out which way you want to go because there are so many social issues going on that they're hard to ignore if you're trying to be a little more realistic with it, which is what I try to write. Um, if this crazy thing happened, this is how it would have actually happened, you know? Yeah. Um, so all of these interesting situations you can do. I do think historical romance gives you a little more freedom because you you know, nobody really knows what it was like. So you can set the world up however you want. Um, but the social constraints can be challenging. Um, that's one reason why I really enjoyed writing Lady Helena in the Lady Tim's mm-hmm. because she's a widow. So she suddenly can go unchaperoned <laughs> to places and you're not really trying to figure out how can I have this man and this woman have a conversation without somebody else being right there, which when you have a debutante or something like that, you really have to, it's, I mean, all this logistical stuff you have to consider. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it can be challenging, but it's a lot of fun because you do get a lot more freedom to just, you know, it's not contemporary. So people aren't saying, Oh no, that can happen now. <laughs> you know, they don't know. I'm curious about kind of this, um, the choice that you were talking about sort of to either go the route of kind of the like fantasy of what historical life might have been like, or be more realistic path. Do you think there's a push for authors to choose one of these or the other? Um, that's a good question. I do think I don't know that there's a push for it, but you kind of have to, as you're planning out your story, you have to decide which way you're going to lean just because it can be, I mean, maybe you could do both. I don't know, but it, I I had to make that choice. I had to figure out which one, you know, when you think of Bridgerton and how pretty everything is and it's just really, um, I mean, and those are great books, nothing against them. I read them and <laughs> Before I started writing. <laughs> so um, it's just it they, they sort of take place in their own romance landia. And you yes. do see readers complain about that. But then you see readers complain, well, it was too real. I read for escapism. So, you know, there are readers who read one or the other and not both. But there are readers who do read both. So. Well, I think that's what drew me to your book's to begin with was that it wasn't the historical romance fantasy. You brought other elements of London into your books and other elements of social issues. And I, I really, I appreciate that. It, it makes it feel a little meatier, if you will, a little bit more to the story. So I really 
this is an interesting discussion to have with a historical romance author. So thank you. Thanks. I really, one of my favorite parts is researching. And usually when I finish a book, I don't go into another one right away just because I spend a few weeks reading nonfiction or, I mean, it sounds so nerdy, but I can spend, I can lose a whole day just on newspapers.com going through <laughs> just the way some of those articles are written, just the cadence, the voice, everything. It's just so funny to me how it sounds different, but similar, you know, to what we mm-hmm. have now. So I, I'll spend a weeks or weeks just doing research and reading through the time period before I start writing another book. And so it just made sense for me to go in that direction because that's what I really love about it. So can we talk a little bit about your kind of journey to publishing? Like, did you always know that you wanted to write or is this something that you kind of came to um, as an adult? I did. Um, So when I was in, I've always been a reader ever since I can remember. And when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I had this, can't remember which one, I had the same English teacher for both, um, Mrs. Graham. She had us start writing short stories. Love it. And of course, mine ended up being, well, I would write a chapter this week and then a chapter. So it was longer <laughs> than if I could do short stories. Um, and then she made us and it was horrifying. I can still remember thinking, oh my gosh, I can't do this. We would have to go to the carpet and like read our work to each other. Oh dear. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like 13 year olds. It's terrifying. But, and then we would pass our work around and people would write notes. Oh. And I can still remember like seeing the people, the students like leaning in, listening. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, people want to hear this. They want to know what happens next. So that was my first rush of like, oh, I want to write stuff for people. Um, and I can remember getting one of my papers back thinking, and, and the comment was, I really care about these characters, exclamation point. <laughs> and so that was my drug. That was my first taste. <laughs> and I knew I wanted to write. And then I read Morning Glory by LaBerle Spencer. Oh, uh, yes. Glory. <laughs> And it is still my favorite book to this day. And I can't even describe the book because honestly, not much happens in it for the first half. It's just these two people getting to know each other. You know, he answers her ad for her husband. It's so gorgeous. Pre-World War II. Um, you know, the war is looming in the background, but he works on her farm and he helps take care of her. She's a widow and she has like three children. And so they just become a family. Um, and nothing happens, but you get to see these people fall in love. So that was my first, I would say I'm more, I started with the characters first than the plot, just because of that book. I just loved those characters and how you cared about them, even though not much was happening, stuff day-to-day farm life. Um, so then I knew I wanted to write. I never really thought it's something that I could do. So I went to business school. I did consider going to English, but I took a couple of English electives and was like, I can't analyze all day. I just cannot analyze stories. This is not for me. So I went to business school, so at least I could find a job doing something. Um, But I 
never liked any jobs that I had. I went into accounting, which I don't know why I thought I would like that. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> then um, I had my my first daughter, and I'm like, okay, I'm staying home and writing because if I don't do it now, I'm going to have to wait till I retire. And thankfully, my husband was on board with that idea. <laughs> so that's when I started writing probably about 10, 11 years ago. Nice. And then I started publishing, thankfully. Yay. We are so glad that you did. <laughs> <laughs> so can you give us a hint um, about what readers can look for next from you? Are we continuing with this series? Are we moving off in a different direction? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I just finished the fourth book in the series and okay. turned it into my editor. So it's the rough draft stage. Um, so Camille has been a character in all of these books. In the prologue of book one, The Heiress Gets a Duke, she was the one that the, the Crenshaws got to see her married off to this Duke who was about three times older than her. And he was marrying her for her money. And she did not want to get married, but she was sort of forced into it by her parents. Um, she's been the cautionary tale. And she was inspired by uh, Consuelo Vanderbilt in some ways. Oh, okay. um, so, you know, she's the readers asked for it. It wasn't planned. Her book wasn't. But readers asked for it. And thankfully, the publisher okayed it. So <laughs> we're going to have her book, which is. The Duchess Takes a Husband. I, I don't have a release date for you. Okay. I can't wait. You waiting. set that up nicely um, at the end of the third book. And so I might have squealed a little bit because I think I know who the Duchess's husband might be. And I think he's a fascinating person. So I'm really, mm -hmm. really excited. <laughs> so. Um. So we've been talking a lot about your writing life and we've talked about your books, but when you're not writing, are you drawn to reading historical romances or do you typically read outside the genre when you're not reading historical papers of the day? <laughs> um, my go-to right now are thrillers just because it's so Yay! different <laughs> than what I'm writing. Um, so I need that escape. It I do read historical romance. I love historical romance, but it can be hard for me to turn off my editor brain. Yes. Ah, uh, um, yes. I could see I that. I could be a little bit like, oh, I feel like this scene should have come next when it's not even my book and it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, or I'm like, oh, I like what they did there. And I'm going back and rereading dialogue to try to figure out how did they, do, how did they write that? So that's my problem with reading historical romance. I still read it. And there are a few authors like um, Lisa Claypass and Meanie mm -hmm. Matthews. They always take me out of my head and I'm just enjoying the story. <laughs> I just discovered Meanie Matthews. She's delightful. Yeah, I love the podcast. Um, I interviewed her for the podcast for her latest uh, Siren of Sussex mm -hmm. yeah. um, right at the beginning of the year. And she's just a lot of fun. And I can't wait to delve deeper into her, into her backlist. Yeah, I love her books. I just love, they pulled me right into the time period. And she wrote one over the summer. I don't know if you've read it yet, John here. 
Um, I haven't read it yet, but it's on my TBR. Yeah, it's more gothic, and it's sort of, um, you know, it turns Jane Eyre on her head. Yep. Ah, yes. <laughs> so I love it. So I love to read things like that that sort of take me out of my comfort zone, and it turns off the editor brain. So we are um, – so you enjoyed John Eyre. Um, are there mm-hmm. any thrillers that you've read recently that you want to recommend to our podcast listeners? We are kind of a diverse group of readers here at Book Bistro. We are. Oh, well, I recently discovered, oh, what's her name? Lucy Foley, The Hunting Party. And so oh, yeah. I'm really looking forward to The Paris Apartment that just came out. I haven't read that yet. I so. just picked that up, actually. I haven't started it yet, but it came in for me um, uh-huh. through the library. So I'm very excited for that one. Yeah, I am too. So, what else? Um, oh gosh, I can't. My mind went blank. I can't remember any others right now. There's another one, Rachel something. She wrote one set in Birmingham, Alabama, which I loved because I'm from Alabama originally. And is it Rachel Hawkins? Is it Reckless Girls? Yes. Her, yeah, the book that it is. To that was that. Oh, yeah. the woman, what is it? The wife upstairs. Yes, yes. That's oh. her, yes. So I'm looking forward to reading The Reckless Girls, too. I think Brooke, who is one of our um, podcast presenters who reads a lot of thrillers, I think she read The Wife Upstairs, like, right after it came out. Mm-hmm. Well, I want um, to thank you so incredibly much for taking time out of your schedule, especially so close to like your own release day at the time that we're recording this. Um, the Lady Tempts in Air has only been out for a couple of days. So I really appreciate your time. And before you dash off, I'm wondering if you can let listeners know the best place to find you online. Absolutely. Um, I'm usually on Instagram just because I love the pretty pictures and I do occasionally <laughs> post. And on Twitter sometimes, and occasionally Facebook, um, and it's all at Harper St. George. Perfect. So once again, this has been a discussion with author Harper St. George about her latest novel, The Lady Tempts an Heir, Gilded Age Heiresses, book three. All right. So quite a few awesome books are coming out this week. Um, I'm going to start with a couple that you've heard us mention before on our most anticipated releases of September episode. First up is a book that I mentioned on that episode, and it is the latest from Justina Ireland. This is Rust in the Roots. It's young adult alternative history with fantasy. Um, If you read Dread Nation, you are familiar with Justina Ireland. We then have the new Jennifer Eastep. This is Only Bad Options, Galactic Bonds, book one. This is a sci-fi novel, and Natalia mentioned that one. Georgina is looking forward to Dreamland by Nicholas Sparks, and The Kiss Curse, which is the sequel to last year's The X-Hex by Aaron Sterling. Stacy mentioned 
the new J.R. Ward. This is The Viper, Black Dagger Brotherhood, Prison Camp, number three. Kristen is also super excited for this one. So those are some books that you've heard us mention previously. So let's move on now to some books that we haven't mentioned before. I'm starting out with The Killing Code by Ellie Marnie. This is a historical mystery about a girl who is tracking down a serial killer at great risk to herself. If you're looking for something a little more cozy, you might be interested in The Bullet That Missed, Thursday Murder Club, book three by Richard Osman. This is the third in a series about four senior citizens who begin solving mysteries in their retirement village. Once again, this is The Bullet That Missed, Thursday Murder Club, book three by Richard Osman. We also have The Old Place. This is by Bobby Finger. It is set in a small Texas town. It examines secrets um, and basically just what life is like in some of these small towns that seem idyllic on the surface, but may have some darker undertones. Again, it's The Old Place by Bobby Finger. We also have The Convention of Wives. This is by Deborah Green. It is about two women who are both married to surgeons. They meet at a convention. They bond over their husbands' demanding schedules. But as years go by, their friendship is tested until they are thrown together once again when tragedy strikes. This is The Convention of Wives, and it's by Deborah Green. We also have The Frederick Sisters Are Living the Dream by Jeannie Susie. This is, if you read um, Riding the Bus with My Sister, this is kind of that, but fiction. So it is about a woman who becomes the guardian for her sister with special needs, and it kind of examines you know, her role in her sister's life and how these two women come together after being you know, kind of separated for a number of years. So this is The Frederick Sisters Are Living the Dream by Jeannie Susie. We then have some Rachel Higginson. This is Throne of a Thousand Lies, Nine Kingdoms, book two. Rachel Higginson is an author that I personally haven't read, although Stacy and Natalia have both enjoyed her books in the past. They are normally um, romance. Some of them have some magical realism, but this series is more fantasy romance. So if you're looking for romance, but you also want that magic that comes from a world that is not our own, um, this might be something that you want to pick up. It is Throne of a Thousand Lives, Nine Kingdoms, book two by Rachel Higginson. If you love urban fantasy, you may be familiar with Chloe Neal. Her latest novel is Devouring Darkness. This is Heirs of Chicagoland, book four. And again, it's by Chloe Neal. Um, this is a spin-off series of her very popular Chicagoland Vampires. I have read the first couple of that series. I have not made it through 
to the spin-off yet, although Brooke has and really enjoys these. Um, it looks like the audio is not coming out at the same time as the print and Kindle, so you may be waiting um, sometime into October for that one. But this is Devouring Darkness, Heirs of Chicagoland, Book 4 by Chloe Neal. We have a new Bridget Kemmerer out this week. This is Defend the Dawn. It is Defy the Night, book two. Kemmerer has written a lot of high young adult fantasy. Some of it has like a fairy tale retelling vibe. Um, she's done something that is a little bit of a like Rumpelstiltskin retelling. Brooke is a big fan of Kemmerer's writing. And I think Kristen has mentioned her a time or two on um, one of our most anticipated um, books episodes. So this one is Defend the Dawn, Defy the Night, book two by Bridget Kemmerer. We also have The Last Dreamwalker. This is by Rita Woods. And it is about a girl whose dreamwalking power is steeped in mysticism and secret. It's apparently been passed down through generations of women, but very little is known about this particular power. This is The Last Dreamwalker, and it is by Rita Woods. There's a new book by Adam Sass out this week. It is The 99 Boyfriends of Micah Summers. I read an Adam Sass book earlier this year for the first time, and it was Surrender Your Sons, and it was amazing. This one does not look to be as dark as that one, um, but it definitely deals with some LBGT issues. Um, Sass is such a skilled writer. He handles really delicate subjects with a lot of sensitivity, and I've enjoyed um, what I've read of his so far, and definitely plan to pick up something else that he writes. This is The 99 Boyfriends of Micah Summers, and it is by Adam Sass. We also have a new kind of, I don't know, like a little bit time travel, a little bit magical realism. This is My Second Impression of You, by Michelle I. Mason. This is about a teenage girl who is given the opportunity to relive a pivotal day in her life. And so she wakes up and it's like this day has never happened. She gets to do it all over again. So kind of like that thing you see on social media when we're asking for a do-over. Apparently in this book, you can actually get one. It is My Second Impression of You and it's by Michelle I. Mason. I also want to mention Getaway, which is the new book by Lamar Giles. Lamar Giles writes some young adult thrillers, also just some YA contemporary fiction that doesn't necessarily have thriller elements. This one, though, feels a little bit dystopian, and I'm pretty excited about it. I'm on hold for it at my public library. Um, the list is a little long, but not terrible. Again, this is Getaway by Lamar Giles. If you're looking for a rom-com, you might be looking for the new Jasmine Guillory, which is out this week. It's called Drunk on Love. Jasmine was on the podcast a few months ago um, 
for another one of her books, and she took the romance world by storm a couple of years ago, and it's just been so, so popular since then. So if you haven't picked up one of her books in a series, but you're kind of interested, this might be a good one as it looks to be a standalone. This is Drunk on Love by Jasmine Guillory. And I want to talk about a couple of historical novels here before I end. We have Mother Daughter Trader Spy by Susan Elia McNeil. This is set in the early days of World War II, and it's about a mother and daughter who go undercover when they learn that there is a Nazi cell operating in Los Angeles. For some reason, this reminds me of Karen Robard's first book, um, The Black Swan of Paris, not her first book, but her first historical fiction book, um, The Black Swan of Paris. I'm not sure if that's an, um, an accurate comp since I've not read this one yet, but the synopsis did make me think of it. So this is Mother Daughter Trader Spy, all one word, by Susan Elia McNeil. And lastly, we have a new book by Linda Cohen Leugman out this week. This is The Matchmaker's Gift. Um, when I first saw this title, I got it confused with The Matchmaker's List by Sonia Lolly. And I was like, wait, this came out a few years ago. And then I realized, no, this is The Matchmaker's Gift. So this is um, about a Jewish matchmaker and talks about how things are really difficult for her since usually um, in this period in history, the matchmakers were men, and she's a woman, so we're focusing on that and just kind of the historical role matchmakers played. Um, I've read The Wartime Sisters by Cohen Leugman a couple of years ago, really, really liked it, although I think her most popular book is one called The Two Family House, which I own but have not read yet. This one, though, is The Matchmaker's Gift, and it's by Linda Cohen Leugman. And that is all I have for you this week. I hope all of you are doing well, staying safe, getting ready to say hello to my favorite season. It is almost fall here in my part of the world, and I am super excited. Now I just need the weather to cooperate with me and like stop being 90 degrees and actually kind of feel like fall. But hasn't happened yet. Hopefully it will happen soon. I hope again that all of you are enjoying the last days of summer and also are ready to say hello to fall. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.